Greetings, programs, and welcome back to a new episode of the Awesome Friday Podcast. I am your host, Matthew, and joining me today, as is what usually happens, um, is Simon. Uh, say hello to our people, Simon. Uh, good morning to the people of the British Republic of Canada and to uh, <laughs> our, our uh, uh, responsibility nations all over the world. I do hope you're enjoying our new king. We certainly are. Um, uh, point of order: we, should... we are the we are the Dominion of Canada, not the Republic. yes. That's right. You are in our dominion, and that means <laughs> that your your money is going to change uh, because we are now. Uh, the magic family has a new head, and that magic family from the other side of the world now is going to be on your money. And so you should be grateful. Like, I really, really think, grateful. I really think that Charles um, was coronated as supporting yesterday. Um, I really think he should have chosen a new regnal name. I think he should have been Chuck. King Chuck first. <laughs> King Chuck. King Chuck. <laughs> or yeah. something like Lysander the, the Great. Or you know, Ch- just, Charles the the resurgitator, like something awesome. Yeah, Charles the short lived. Charles. <laughs> well, I hope so. Charles yeah, the uh, Charles the ears. Someone uh, said on Twitter. Someone said on Twitter yesterday, like everyone's saying this is a once in a lifetime occasion. Bitch, there's three of these lined up with them in my lifetime. Like two of them were there, ready to take the the stand. Like William and his little boy were just like, yes, yes. Yeah, um, it was definitely it was, definitely a whole thing, right? Thing. I didn't, I did not watch it. I did not say the words. I, <laughs> at, I don't as a I as a person who I, I think I'm I'm a little in the in the middle because I think most of the people I know either are like fuck the monarchy or abolish the monarchy, and my personal position is like they don't actually have any bearing on my day to day life in Canada. Like we, they're figurehead only, so I don't care. Um, uh, you know, and, and it's different in the in the UK, obviously, because you're subsidizing this billionaire family, and yeah. I'm sure we are to some extent too. But like, we don't you are. like like we have a uh, we have a governor general, so that does all mm-hmm. the ascent in the in the name of the king, and the king yeah. doesn't actually have to do anything here. Like it doesn't, and like the ruling party, the company, like the party that forms government in Canada appoints the governor general. So like, yeah, it doesn't doesn't really See, affect me. It's very interesting to me in that, that there are currently more food banks in the UK than McDonald's. Uh, there are tens of thousands of people who are eating one meal a day. Uh, oh yeah, the UK people, is fucked. People, people, people cannot afford to, to live at the moment. And so I was wondering, oh, will this be reflected? Will it be a bit slightly more austere service? And then the <laughs> no. coach turned up and, and he's like, at one point he wears three like ancient gold cloaks that are three pounds of gold each then he has a gold scepter and a gold stick and a gold crown and i'm like you know there's there's gonna be a point where people kind of get a bit french about this like people how hungry and poor are the poor gonna get before they watch something like this and still think it's a good thing i i'm really interested in the japan model so i don't remember exactly what it was my students told me but the emperor in Japan used to be this almost like a monarchy we have here, subsidized huge amounts of money. And then that got changed completely. And the Japanese at the emperor is now a kindly old man that people genuinely like, but has is nothing more than a symbol, a tourism symbol. 
and doesn't yeah. get the money anymore, doesn't wield the power, doesn't wield the wealth, um, walks around the seats. And I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it have been awesome if Charles had recognised the current state of our country, or of the country, and said, you know what, come line up. I'm going to ride down Pall Mall on a horse in a suit. I'm going to walk him. We're not going to sit here for four hours. You just give me the crown and say the words, and I'll say the words, and then we'll be done. Because mm-hmm. that would be a better reflection of where we are. But, of course, um, the, the, the country is still has this generational split where the the old white uh, conservatives want to have this monarch in place because it represents this very old-fashioned kind of power doesn't it but i mean yeah, saying that just... it was it was we watched the whole thing um we watched the highlights well... in the morning we had some people over and then we watched it three and a half hours of the whole thing and it really felt like someone was cosplaying uh, a Western RPG because the <laughs> Kate, I don't know if you saw Kate Middleton, but I would go to war for that woman. She was wearing Britannia robes that looked like the kind of armor I wanted in Dragon's Dogma with this amazing like headdress. And she was wearing Diana's earrings. And she, I would follow that woman into battle. Um, she looked incredible. So that was fun. And I'm really fascinated by the service, which has, so many layers of uh, like weird ritual, really weird ritual that all these, it's a bit like if you strip back paint on an old house, you find all these layers of paint that people just painted over. It's just all these layers of ritual. And then at one point he has to go behind a screen because he gets anointed by oil. And that's actually too holy for anyone to actually see. Yep. But when they, do it on, when they do it on Camilla, that's fine. You don't need the screens because it's just Camilla. Um, it's fascinating to me, but I think, I don't think... Now she's actually the queen now, isn't she? She is actually the queen. She was the queen consort, and then Charles, as king, changed his mother's wish and made her queen. Yeah. And um, I'm just I mean, I've, I've watched The Crown, you. so let me just say that that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I don't know functionally what the special family really can have a place in modern society but um it's it's interesting to me but i'm no royalist i'm having a conversation with my my parents this morning me and my dad are exactly the same and my wife and my mum are exactly the same like they they love the, the the whole nature of it and they like the tradition of it and me and my dad are like burn the whole thing down <laughs> ransack the place sell off yeah. the gold well, I didn't. Uh, I didn't watch it, but I did hear that they they did crown Camilla with without the stolen diamond in the crown. So that's something. Oh, okay. Um, like they took the Koinor diamond out of the crown uh, because, oh, again, stolen diamond. I mean, it's all stolen. We could have a whole oh. podcast about imperialism, um, but it's a whole. I mean, is it stolen or is it preserved for future generations? It's stolen. Why? Okay. But is it, st- is it, it's like a museum. Consider the monarchy a museum. Consider the empire a museum. But the, the, the people that are it's all stolen, Simon. Didn't really cho- they didn't really choose to be in the museum, if you like. It's all, it it's all like- stolen. I can't, I can't even make a joke about it, man. It's all stolen. <laughs> and every time, every time I hear someone being like, well, if we gave it back to them, they'd probably just ruin it. And I'm like, oh, yes. you're racist then. You're just racist. Got it. That's right. <laughs> like, that's right. I, like it's just to stop. Don't. Uh, it's anyway. Yeah, this is a different podcast. We're a movie podcast, uh, but yes, imperialism yes. is alive and well in certain aspects of society. 
certain um, certain generation but it, for sure. But hey, it was it was a big TV event though, so that's that's I guess relevant. That's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I saw I saw the Mario movie. I, we could talk about that for ten seconds. That's a movie. I saw that on Tuesday. It, oh, yeah. uh, do you, the reason that movie has made a billion dollars is that it's exactly what you think it is. I'm kind of disappointed. It's fine. It's totally fine in that it's not terrible and it's not great. <laughs> like I, I actually, I'm the person who keeps saying you should talk about illumination in the same breath as Pixar, like illumination are awesome, but this is the least illumination illumination movie. Cause Nintendo are very, very protective with their IP. So it's fine. There's a couple of flashy moments. Jack Black's the MVP, and there's one. Um, there's a star who sees uh, the whole world as pain and death, and that's quite fun. But the rest is exactly. If you imagined a Super Mario Brothers movie and have played the games, then you can imagine this movie in its entirety. Yeah, it's fine. I don't expect it to be anything more. I sort of, without having seen it, I can say that I, I sort of get the critical reaction being not good. Um, just because, you know, when you watch a ton of movies and you see the same thing over and over and over again, and they just show you the same thing again, kind of go, eh, I wish they'd done anything mm -hmm. different at all. Um, but and then yeah. I get why the audience reaction is actually yeah. quite high because it delivers on exactly what they promised. It does. It. Exactly. So it's a very safe movie, uh, but it does it like it's laser guided and really well made. So it's not a bad movie. It's just not surprising in any way. Yeah, I saw a post from one of those um, on Facebook the other day, and it was from one of those uh, Facebook pages that's very, very, very bait for nerds that says something inflammatory like, you know, this Star Wars character is better than that Star Wars character, or, or you know, <laughs> stuff that stuff that makes you want to make an angry comment, basically. <laughs> um, uh, and I didn't respond to it, but I started to, and I ended up just making a Facebook account. So find me on Facebook. Um, but basically I was like, cause the, the post was like, critics are so out of touch and it just highlighted the critic versus audience score on Mario movie. And also on another one that's had the same sort of divide. I can't remember what it was. Um, but my point was like, don't use Rotten Tomatoes as a metric just a measure of consensus like use it as a tool mm. to find critics whose tastes align with your own you'll have a much better time oh, and then answering and then like answering some of the more common like you know there's lots of commenters on these types of sites that are like critics are all paid shills and like on, it's so as a person who actually does work as a critic uh because i am now in a position where i am getting paid to work as a critic the idea that any of us outside of the mm. like elite few could make a living at it is just mm. like if you only knew how laughable it is. Like it's mm -hmm. so fucking it's so far away from most people. And even those people who are the quote elite few, like the the Matt Teller Seitzes and the Alan Septwalls of the world, like those guys are constantly like writing books. One of them owns a, a bookstore, one of them has three different podcasts on three different like these people are still constantly having to hustle to make a, like mm -hmm. an actual living in this because for the same reason that the writers are all on strike, that like people don't, don't value it the way they should, you know, that's uh, mm -hmm. criticism is an art form in and of itself. And uh, people don't, people don't value it the way by, so what I'm coming a, a very long way to say is, is it's that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you're, you're, we can see that in the writer's strike as well, with the all the things that the writers have asked for, and the and Hollywood uh, Writers Association have said, no, no, you're, we, we're not going to pay you extra for residuals. We're not, uh, and we're going to write things by AI, and then you have to fix them. And the writers are like, oh yeah, what, like... If, what if we didn't do any of that? What if we valued creative expression for what it actually is, and not just something that anyone can do? Yeah, I mean. I honestly had thoughts about whether we should record this week, given that the writer's strike is on. We, to be clear, we're not in the guild, so and <laughs> <We don't> uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and and also like, um, in case it's not clear, in case you haven't been following my Twitter, like, we <laughs> we stand with the WGA on this issue, like, um, and we're not the, we're not the, scripted. <laughs> the the constant and ongoing erosion of writers' pay has been ridiculous, especially in the consistent and explosive increase in CEOs. Like mm-hmm. the amount, the amount of money that David Zasloff made last year, which is almost a quarter of a billion dollars, made $250 million last year. Um, um, would is enough to pay for the writer's demands like for decades. <laughs> like, and when the writers and when the writers went on strike, all of the like the combined like uh, market cap value that the studios lost because all of their stocks took hit. They, they lost billions of dollars in value, and someone did the math and figured out they could fund all of the writers' demands for thirty years <laughs> on just just on the value lost from the strike happening. Yeah. It's so, so and it's the same thing with the uh, PSAC workers here in Canada, right? Like, just fucking pay them. Like, everyone, there's so many people in the world who are like, you know, these people need to get back to work and process my tax return. And my answer is always like, oh, so their work has value? (laughs) Is what you're saying? Like, so maybe pay them to do it. Like, these people are not compensated in today's, like, everyone needs to make more money. It's just a thing. Like, and there's, it's every time there's a major strike like this, and here in Canada we have two to follow. Although I think PSAC is back to work all except for one division. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how it was last time I heard it. And the writers' strike. But every time there's one of these strikes, it just sort of reveals people as class traitors that you wouldn't expect, and it's really disappointing. Uh, and then in some ways, it's also not surprising because the number of you know blue checks on Twitter who are like, "Get them back to work." It's like, "Yep, that makes sense." <laughs> yeah. Know, that's anyway, what, that's what many of them are for. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. Any of that. Yeah. It's it's a whole thing. But anyway, Hollywood, if you're listening, like the reason you're able to pay David Zaslav two hundred and fifty million dollars a year is because of the writers. So pay them. <laughs> like, you know what? I'm not, really. It's not complicated. Do you know what I'm really looking forward to? Even though I haven't seen season one. And that's Rings of Power season two because they've decided they're just going to carry on making that without writers. And uh, I want to see a Lord of the Rings show without actual writers on it. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, and I think what a lot Can of people imagine? don't realize, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you know lots of people think that you, as a writer, you write a script and you hand it in and then you're done. But that's just not the case. Like writers are on hand mm. all the time, and every time there's you know, there's some conversation either via like how the performance is shaking out or how the scene is working. Like all those adjustments are happening by writers on set. Like writing doesn't finish until the show is finished. Right. So mm-hmm. I think we need to re. many people need to realign 
how they understand the process to work as well. Um, and, but also just like, it's, it's interesting because Amazon owns MGM Studios, which also owns James Bond. And it's like they don't remember uh, Quantum, Quantum of Solace. Yeah. And like, I'm pretty big. I think Quantum of Solace is not a bad movie. It's a, it's a very interesting movie. It really functions well as like a denouement to Casino Royale. Like it's, it's very focused in a way that a lot of the other ones aren't. And it's also a direct sequel in a way that a lot of the other ones aren't. But also, you can definitely tell that they made that movie during a writer's strike. Because yeah, sure. a lot of it feels very drafty. A lot of it doesn't quite hang together very well. And the ending is quite a problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> so even though I think it's an okay movie, not great, but not terrible. Um, it's Lots of people think it's terrible, though. And it's the reason for that is that there was a writer's strike in 2008. They weren't able to have writers on set. They weren't able to massage things as they went and that's what we ended up with right and there's uh, countless other examples from 2008 lots of tv shows that were canceled or had short seasons or just never recovered their viewership from the year yeah. when they had to go on hiatus like all the things we value about content all you know and i hate i hate that i now have started calling it that's a whole but all of the things we value about things we consume come from the writers. And, and that's the most annoying well, not, thing for me. Not not all of it, but like most of it. Like it starts with yeah. and ends with the writer. So even in a way where we venerate directors in a way that I feel we probably should venerate mm -hmm. writers. And I am definitely guilty of this. Um, where we, 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 we talk in depth about a director's vision, but we don't talk about the script as much as we should. Oh, we and, have completely the wrong idea about directors. I had the wrong idea about directors until I worked on film sets and realized every movie you love, the reason you love it is because of the cinematographer and the writers. Yeah. Like, you have directors are, are far too high up on the pedestal. Yeah. But well, I think what you're saying is correct, and what I find the most frustrating is that the last writer's strike, where, which I was, I was working through, and I, it just brought everything to a crunch. And the result of the writer's strike was so clear that the importance that the writers bring to these productions, is just kind of annoying 15 years later, we're back in this position. And I've been working in the creative arts since, well, God, all my life. And I've gone on and on and on about how creative output is so devalued. And it has been over years and years and years. It's underfunded. And there's this idea with like X Factor and, and all these shows where you can just be creative you can just anyone can be a writer anyone can be a singer anyone can be a dancer and it ignores the fact that professionals train they learn how to do it and they train for years and years and years to be good at it there's no such thing as just being amazing at it but with the writers these studios think well anyone can write right you're just putting words on a paper you're just putting words on the screen and now with ai it's like well we don't even need writers to do that anymore we'll just generate it and fix it and it's so yeah frustrating because it so undervalues creative human creativity and i worry where it's going from here yeah and it's really upsetting that like the wga released their negotiation like proposals and counters um sheet you can go find it it's all over twitter but basically like about all of the biggest points like don't use ai to write shows um you know, the proposal is don't from the WJ is like, you can't use AI. And the response from the studios is 
refuse, um, and no counter. Yeah. Like, no counter off. And of there's a lot of them like that. that. Like, you know, one of them is be transparent about streaming formats so that we can, comp so writers can be comp compensated more fairly if their show is a huge hit. And the count and the response is uh, refuse, no counter off. You know, <laughs> like, it's, well, of course, it's such... It's so it's so clear that they want to make as much money as possible. And AI doesn't need residuals. AI doesn't even need to be paid more than just the license. And suddenly they've got scripts. And yeah. uh, and, and, and they can get an intern to, to, to punch them up. And it's just... It's and there's just so many stories of... There's also just so many stories of, like, writers who have a hit show on TV and are struggling to make rent. Or I read one from... Uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was one on Twitter. If you look at my Twitter feed, you'll find it because I retweeted it. But it was from a writer talking about how, on the in the same week they learned they were nominated for an Emmy, they had applied for and were rejected from a job at Best. That's the bear writer. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just so so frustrating. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, we support the writers, and uh, you should you should too. And if you if you don't remember, if you're not a CEO and you don't support the writers, then you are a class trader, and that is—you <laughs> should think about that. You should—you should think about. I think we often forget about what class we're actually in. I think most of us overestimate. And even if you do, like, look at someone who's very successful as a writer, maybe has millions of dollars to your name, their name. Um, you still have more in common with that person than that person does with the CEO signing checks. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, because they are the CEOs are all in, in a a whole other class. So. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's very much she like the about, movies we're about to watch. About our movies. <laughs> yeah. Now that we've ranted for twenty minutes, mm -hmm. we should probably move on. But so we're going to cover two uh, movies today, as we always do. Um, and one of them, I guess, technically has some, you know parallels in terms of like money and who it's allocated to um and so simon why don't you give us a breakdown of the just released on demand uh dungeons and dragons honor among thieves uh okay uh dungeons and dragons honor among thieves follows a band of adventurers um trying to do a thing and they they do a thing and they are um misled in the uh, objectives of what that thing would bring and it turns out they let they give a very bad person a lot of power in fact a couple of people sort of power and then they spend the rest of the movie um writing that wrong and of course writing the wrongs in themselves as well uh, going through the character arcs and basically if you've ever watched the dungeons and dragons cartoon from the 80s which is amazing and you should if you've ever played dungeons and dragons with a group of real life people. I really hope you have that opportunity because it's really, really fun. Um, if you liked good adventure movies from the eighties, um, if you like game night, <laughs> um, then this movie is for you that I can't think of a single type of person that this movie, I wouldn't recommend for, to watch this movie. It is one of those rare, almost old fashioned, uh, ensemble um, adventures where every line is funny or every joke is funny. Uh, the pathos is real. Everyone has an arc. Um, the editing is spectacular. The directing is amazing. 
And this is so far away from the previous Dungeons and Dragons movie with Jeremy Irons uh, chewing up the scenery. This is a very different kind of movie and it really uh, loves the, uh, the product of Dungeons and Dragons and it gets what it is. But the, whoever wrote this really understands that Dungeons and Dragons isn't high fantasy. It's not Lord of the Rings. People don't walk around going, ah, good morning, good morrow to you. Uh, or if they do, they're being sarcastic. It's often lots of sniping, lots of kind of quipping, and lots of big swings, like adventurers mm-hmm. taking big, big swings and being really brave and surviving by the skin of their teeth and then talking about it for like year, years afterwards. And um, Stranger Things actually got this. I mean, the Duffer Brothers, we, we know that they they've got a long connection with Dungeons and Dragons. Stranger Things got this too. And to the point that I was half expecting the end of this movie, spoilers, I was half uh, expecting it to be like the Lego movie where we, we pull back and we find it's actually the Stranger Kings, uh, Things kids playing a D&D campaign in character. But the, the writers and directors get that Dungeons and Dragons is meant to be quippy and uh, not everyone can be the hero, but everyone can be heroic. Yeah. And it's just, it's it's brilliantly done. And um, the, the cast is wonderful. Chris Pine continues to be uh, like, this era's Jimmy Stewart. Like, I think he's got, <laughs> he's he's got the charm. He's got the, the, the he's funny. He's got okay. like, physical humor. He's handsome devil. Like, he's got it all. And honestly... I feel a little bit bad because I've only seen Michelle Rodriguez be Michelle Rodriguez in every other movie she's been in. And uh, this is probably my favorite performance of her in this movie. Like she's really good in this. And I mean, but it is, um, it does play to her, her strengths. Like she basically, you know, she got her start in a boxing film and she's in the Fast and Furious franchise and various action films. This one, <laughs> yes. this one, this one definitely still knows that at but it does well, her character does so have a little more like humanity yeah. than a lot of those other ones. Absolutely. Let's do actual proper acting. I love Justice Smith and everything he's in, so it's a real pleasure to see him in this. And uh, I will pay money to watch Hugh Grant read from a newspaper. Like that I will in the current era of Hugh Grant is so perfect in anything he chooses to do is perfect and he is perfect in this movie too. Yeah. And um, it's it's just very funny as well. There's the, the editors and directors understand the humor of unreliable narrators uh, uh, with flashbacks from those narrators that actually change as the narrator corrects themselves. It's a really tricky thing to get right, but this film does it brilliantly. Oh, I love this film so much. Yeah, and it definitely buys into everything Dungeons & Dragons is in a big way too, in that like, you definitely see Dragonborn, and I can't remember what the bird people are called. Um, and they mention, <laughs> they mention so like, they mention like Neverwinter and Baldur's Gate, and like they very much like they're clearly Dungeons and Dragons fans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this was written by uh, Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, uh, along with Chris McKay and Michael Giulio, um, uh, who also, and they also wrote and directed Game Night, which you already mentioned, and they have a pretty great track record at this point um, of just making movies that are fun. Like, Game Night is a super underrated movie. I feel like not enough mm. people 
soggy night. Mm -hmm. uh, not enough people understand the hilarity that is the line. How could that possibly be profitable for Frito-Lay? Um, but this movie is is also full of that kind of line. Uh, and it really understands that, you know, lots of movies fail. Lots of movies like these, this one fail when they try to be like grim and brooding and super serious mm. and like the dragons are coming. We must, you know, we must hunker down and be the heroes. And this movie is like, um, let's just pivot to plan B. Oh, uh, no, we're on plan C. And plan C is actually just plan A again. Um, let's, you know, like it's very, it, it, it captures the feeling of playing a Dungeons and Dragons game. You're right in that. You said it would have been uh, interesting if they, or it would have been not a shock if it pulled back and it's just the Stranger Things kids playing a game. And I was, <laughs> what I was going to say before you said that was, I'm pretty sure the way they wrote this is they just played Dungeons and Dragons and recorded it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, and I think that it's, I think you're right. It's really well cast. Chris Pine is, um, I think Chris Pine is a super interesting actor, and he's at a phase in his career where he's really willing and able to commit to um, just being like interesting and he's and charismatic. He's not really being shoehorned into the sort of like stoic leading man roles that he was in Zeros. Um, and as a result, he's making, making much more interesting choices. He's definitely on the same wavelength here as he was in uh, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 1 especially. Mm -hmm. um, but with a bit more of a twinkle, you know, like a bit more of a, mm. I'm clearly having the time of my life making yeah. this type twinkle in his eye. Yeah. Um, but it's not like it's his movie. Like, it's very much an ensemble. This this team of filmmakers really seems to know how to manage an ensemble, which I think is an underrated skill. Mm -hmm. um, because everyone, Michelle Rodriguez, Justice Smith, Sophia Lillis, Hugh Grant, uh, and Regé Jean Page all get a moment to shine and a moment to be um to really sort of like they all get a character arc they all get a moment to shine they all get super memorable moments and none of them really overshadow the others chris pine's character is ostensibly the protagonist like he has the most clearly defined arc um but michelle rodriguez's character is along for that ride as well uh, and you know the justice smith and sophia lillis they have their own separate arc that all gets resolved, tidied up, tied up really nicely at the end. But you're not wrong. I think, honestly, my, my MVP here is Hugh Grant, who is also in a super <laughs> interesting phase of his career where he's able to turn out, well, turn out, that's a negative way to say it, but he's able to do stuff <laughs> like, like this. He's definitely working in the same wavelength as he was in Paddington 2, which, by the way, one of the best movies in the 21st century so far. Mm -hmm. Um... Uh, but he's also able to do things like um, he was in that HBO show recently, Cole Kidman, which has just um, escaped my brain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, um, in which he's also really, really good. Um, is what I'm trying to say. He's got he's really showcasing his range and his just willingness to commit to the bit, um, oh. and he's just so utterly charming. And he's able to really put a layer of slime on that <laughs> that. Yeah. He could, you know, he. I think he understands that twenty or thirty years ago he would have been in Chris Pine's place, right? Yes, like, or, yeah. or, he, or he could have been, because they they do definitely all they operate in a similar. I'm gonna say wavelength again. I need to come up with a thesaurus here, but uh, yeah, I mean it's just super fun. The movie is just super fun, and everyone in it is great. And the effects. There's only one or two moments of fairly dodgy CG, but they're not. 
super dodgy. They're just like there's just a lot, and you can tell. Um, yeah. But a lot of it, a lot of it's actually really well done. Like there's clearly a lot of care involved in setting up the effects, and the wanna... script, and the script is super sharp. Like there's lots yeah. of there's one moment in particular where Michelle Rodriguez uh, and Chris Pine are about to be executed, and the way they stall to get out of that is one of the funniest scenes I've seen all year. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can find it. It's actually that scene is now floating around TikTok from the actual Dungeons and Dragons account. Mm. So you can go find it if you really want to. But just watch the movie, man. Mm. Like such a good, yeah. good, such a good time at the movies. It's, um, it's really fun. And it's, I'm going to I'm going to say spoiler alert that this is this is easily one of my favorite films of the year so far. Yeah. Um, Technically, as well, the, the way the story is told, I've gone on and on each week about I'm really invested in how stories are told now, the creativity in it. And there's two, the whole thing is creatively told brilliantly, but there's two uh, sequences in this that absolutely blew me away. And the first is if you've seen Game Night, you know, it's quite um, famous for its one shot that it does in a, in a mansion. And there's a one shot in this with a character, changing character, basically escaping trouble by going through multiple iterations of what she could change into and it's a one shot that like zooming through a castle that is mind-blowing it's just brilliant and the second is a heist with a portal gun that is one of the best things i've seen in a movie in years and it's so cleverly done and when for me i'm sure it's the same for you as well the satisfaction of a sequence like that when it's so well done and it's so surprising uh, just really oh, drew me in more than I was already. It's technically brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I didn't think you were going to say the first one. I definitely knew you were going to say the second one, though. And I think mm -hmm. one other thing that this movie really gets is the way they come across that portal gun is that it just turns out that one of them has it. <laughs> like I don't. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bit. It's a bit of a spoiler, but I think the film very much understands that. Like, not every bit of kit in their possession needs a yes, huge totally. explanation or backstory. It's just that one of the characters ends up with this thing and with this portal gun, basically, and then someone, they don't think, they don't know what it is, they just think it's a scepter, and then the other character's like, that's a portal gun! And then they start using <laughs> it. Like, And that yeah. is actually kind of the way, it's very similar to the way that Dungeons & Dragons just works. Or if you've ever played yeah. a game based on Dungeons & Dragons, mm -hmm. like, you pick up a loot, and it turns out to be stuff. You know, yeah. like... Um, sometimes it's just a stick and sometimes it's a portal gun and that's how the game and works and I think that's really a, clever the idea of a backpack of random stuff is a key point of D&D &D as well and it's really yeah. nice that that was captured too we've got the, there's a board game called Adventure Begins which is like a D&D &D intro for kids and I play it with my kids all the time and uh, there's a few occasions where you have to get out your backpack and describe how you would kill this monster with all your random stuff and mm -hmm. it really really felt like that it's just really fun. Yeah. And I think also, I don't know if you noticed this, but anytime they're anywhere, they have, whenever they have something like in their hands, like most of the movie, Chris Pine's character has a loot because he's a bard. Um, but then when he switches to a sword, um, the loot disappears and the sword is just in his hand. Like yeah. anything that goes into their bag just disappears, just like it does yeah. in the game or in, or in a video game. Like it just goes in the bag yeah. and it doesn't seem to take up any physical space. And mm -hmm. I know that's a really small detail, but like, and it's it could be just like, oh, well, they were just too lazy to put it in. But like, that's how the game works, man. That's how the game mm -hmm. works. Yeah. And uh, and let let me just say, I've already said that I think 
that uh, Hugh Grant is probably the MVP, but I'm just going to walk that back slightly because I, I just want to talk about how wonderful Reggie Jean Page is in this movie. He's <laughs> not, my wife agrees. He's not in it as much as you might expect. He's not part of the main party. It's like he's definitely like an NPC in the game. Um, but he's so he's so wonderfully charismatic and so able mm. to just deadpan the ridiculous shit his character has to say with such utter sincerity as he's like this he's a super he's a paladin he's a super um honorable and straightforward person um that helps them on one quest and he's just so good again at this deadpan like there's a one point where there's a there's a dragonborn like a giant lizard creature begging in the streets and he gives this person a coin and the monster says jankly and he looks them dead in the eyes with all the sincerity and love in the world and puts his hand on the monster's cheek and says, Jankly to you too, friend. Like, it's just like, it's so ridiculous, but it's so well done. Uh, mm. And let me just say here, if we're going to cast James Bond now, I think Regé Jean Page is a good choice. So, oh, you. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. Uh, yes. So, so just to sum up everything we've talked about, uh, Dungeons and Dragons is fucking great. And I'm going to yeah. go ahead and say, I'm going to say that I think there is some clunkiness in the storytelling, but I'm, so I'm going to say, I've been going back and forth on this, but I'm going to say four stars. Well, I'm going to completely ignore any of that. This is a clear five for me. It's, uh, I think this kind of well-written well-directed adventure ensemble is becoming increasingly rare with an I mean, obsession to make to make everything dark like that obsession to make everything dark and gritty is completely doing my head in and this is to see something that's just so to still have danger and stakes but still be light and fresh is incredibly hard to get right and these were all the this is the movies i watched growing up with yeah all the characters so i, I will say I will say that at the moment, I've only seen it the one time, but I did mm -hmm. I did purchase it. I purchased it when mm -hmm. it came out on demand. It's out on Blu-ray at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. um, but I would be willing to bet real money that the second or third time I watch it, which will definitely mm -hmm. happen, it'll go up to five yeah. stars, like 100%. Yeah. You know, uh, as I pick up on more nuance and I'm willing to forgive more of the stuff that I found a little clunky, or maybe I didn't get... 100% the first time through. Because um, mm -hmm. this definitely belongs in the same canon as like movies I love and give five stars, like, say, The Last mm -hmm. Starfighter or, or Dragon Slayer oh, yeah. or any of those 80s sort of fantasy movies. Uh, fantasy B movies, very particular. Um, mm -hmm. This definitely belongs in that same company. And there's yeah. a there's a non zero chance that this ends up on my best of the year. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's right at the top of the moment. Yeah. Yep. Five five stars all the way for me. I can't wait. I I haven't bought it on demand because I want this on four K. And so as soon as I have that, I will be watching this again for sure. Yep. And I think uh, <sighs> I think they've already started talking about a sequel as well. So. Uh, oh, good. As long I think it, it's one of those things where as long as it uh, um, makes enough money, which it should, uh, mm -hmm. then. I think they're talking about a sequel, and I think they're also talking about a spin-off. Like a, uh, they're like they're trying to do the universe thing of course as well. But I think this could be something that 
you know, Dungeons and Dragons is, I mean, it's already a universe. So I don't know, yeah. 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 Okay. Wonderful. So Wonderful let's move, movie. Let's move on to another story of too much money in all the wrong places. Uh, <laughs> um, and let's talk about uh, our second film, which is the upcoming release. Uh, so this, we're recording this and releasing it on the 7th of May. This movie hits theaters this coming Friday from Elevation Pictures here in Canada. Um, and that is the Canadian tech uh, biopic Blackberry, um, which, in case you've been living under a rock, is the story of the Blackberry, the, the initial sort of smartphone um, which was a Canadian development. And I'm happy to say that this is actually not an American film. This is actually a Canadian made and mm -hmm. produced and starring film. There's one sort of big American actor in it, um, but it is a very much a Canadian film. Mm -hmm. um, and it basically chronicles the story of the BlackBerry, of Research in Motion, the company that made BlackBerry, from about 1996 when they introduced the product to 2008 when the iPhone effectively obliterated them. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I don't think that's a spoiler to say because the, the iPhone effectively obliterated most smartphones on the market at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And it features uh, two, I would say, very great performances. One from Jay Barakel. Uh, apologies, I'm not sure if it's Barakel or Barakel. But anyway, um, he plays um, uh, Mike Lazaridis, who's the engineer who came up with the blackberry along with his team he's the guy who figured out the way to get data onto a smartphone before anyone else um super smart guy and uh then there's glenn howerton probably most famous for it's always sunny in philadelphia and ap bio is here as jim balsley who is the sort of business shark who became co-ceo of rim research in motion uh, and helped get BlackBerry off the ground. Uh, it's not hyperbole to say that BlackBerry was one of the biggest tech firms in the world, certainly one of the biggest ones in Canadian history, a huge deal. So their rise and fall is, uh, I think, an important story. And this this film has the potential to just be fairly, fairly dry, but it's not. And the reason for that is that Glenn Howerton and Jim Bergeron are so good in it. Mm. Um, they are... They are both, I mean, it's hard. You can't ever really say that Jim Barakel is ever unrecognizable. His voice is too distinct for that. Mm -hmm. um, but they are both basically unrecognizably good in this. Mm -hmm. And I like them both as performers anyway, but they're both so, like, fully committed to the performance um, that I think if, if it wasn't them, the film would be would be lesser, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, the basic story is that BlackBerry is, you know, the company Research in Motion is not doing especially well in 1996, and they make a deal with Jim Balsley to come on and give some financing and give some business direction. And eventually they create the BlackBerry and sell it to Verizon. Uh, and then it, the film has a couple of time jumps, um, but it basically chronicles their story from like nothing to the acme of tech and then the beginnings of their fall from grace. Um, all of this is public record, so I, I don't want to spoil it, but um, they both yeah, have think... great, they both have great character arcs. And if you were alive or have read Wikipedia, you sort of know how this is going to end. When I say it in 2008. Um, but Jay Barakel in particular is so good as Les Reedus 
starting out as this very sort of like meek um, engineer who doesn't really know how to deal with people who by the end has become this uh, almost the the shark that Bosley is from the start of a CEO. And his mm. his arc, it sounds pretty simple, but his arc is much more nuanced than that. And I think he does a really good job of conveying everything that Lazaridis did in my brain. I don't know. What did you? I, so I think this movie is really good. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's and it's in particular, I think it's really really well performed. And mm-hmm. it's also super nice that it is because it's a Canadian production. You get you know you already have Jay Barakel, but you also have Michael Ironside, and you have Saul Rubinek, and a number of other fairly big deal Canadian actors who show up and tell this Canadian story, which just makes me happy on a on a. On a national level, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like I always, I always like when these stories are made by us and not by America. I'm you sorry, know. Michael Ironside is Canadian. Yeah. Did you I not? Did not know that. Did you know, did that? know that? Oh yeah, I was Canadian. I did, I did not. All these years. Yeah, he's born in Toronto, or if you're Toronto. from Toronto, or if you're from there, Toronto. But he's. I, Michael Ironside is characterized by being a badass, like a snappy, grumpy, like military style badass. That's not Canadian at all. He's not I mean, polite in any of his movies. We definitely have those people. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, Ironside really got his, <laughs> got his start working with David Cronenberg, who's also Canadian. Um, you know, uh, he's, he's the antagonist in, in Scanners, um, Alice, yeah. Visiting Hours, uh, who's in that show B. And then obviously Top Gun in '86, but yeah, he's mm-hmm. he's a Canadian actor. He shows up. He wow. actually shows up in a lot of Canadian work too. Like he uh, he's, he's been in in several like small budget Canadian things that I've seen over the last few years. Because again, he just seems to be a guy who likes to work, and if he can work close to home, I think he'll do it. So it's uh, it's a good thing. Um, yeah, good for him being getting to the position where he's still alive and probably making so much money off his. 80s and 90s output that he can just make whatever he wants now. That's it. That's great. Yeah. So I'm I'm really interested in this film, especially as we watched it quite quick on the heels of Tetris, and it really exemplifies everything I was saying about Tetris, and that I thought Tetris was incredibly bland and didn't really use the Tetris uh, model to to for the storytelling when it could have. And I think Blackberry is the other side of that coin. And I'm just absolutely fascinated on how this movie is shot and presented in that it, it feels like it's filmed on very low grade quality, like VHS film cameras from the uh, eight, the 90s, uh, many of which I used in my own filmmaking training. And um, there's the, it feels very documentary style. But what I find fascinating as well, and I don't really know how to say this without sounding like an insult, but um, there's something about Jay, Jay Barakel's like, white wig and um, Matthew Johnson's like uh, headband, his Bjorn Borg headband and long hair, and Glenn Howerton's... Um, Bald hairdo? <laughs> well, he, like... Whoever whoever did Glenn Howerton's head has never seen like what actual male pattern balding looks like. It's it's, it's like a monk. He's like shaved a monk's top out of Glenn Howerton's full rich head of hair. And there's something weird because it almost felt like a Beastie Boys 
music video. You know when they went through an era of making like uh, 80s and 90s cop style New York videos. It kind of feels like that with a handheld camera and low stock and pretty uh, pretty basic costumes. But this, <clears throat> it really, really worked for this. I was mm-hmm. really fascinated by it. I thought Jay Barakel, this is the performance of his career so far. I, I've never seen him this nuanced at all because he has made his famous kind of being the comedic, quippy actor. And I thought he was so controlled in this. I've only ever seen Glenn Howerton in Always Sunny. So to see him absolutely just tearing up the screen and being genuinely scary and intimidating, I thought he was amazing. And really, this extends to all of the sporting cast as well. And I love the interplay. Um, uh, It's really well written as well. And I love the interplay between Glenn Howerton and Jay Barakel as Jim and Mike, especially when... Uh, Jim starts realizing that Mike is not this uh, useless introvert, like tech introvert, when he gets him into the sales pitch, uh, one of their first big sales pitches with, um, oh, I can't remember the the, the first big company they go to. It's Verizon and the CEO of Verizon is played by Saul Rubinek. Right, that's right. And there's a wonderful scene where... Glenn Howerton's the shark, and he goes in and is like, you're going to, this is going to change the world. You're, you're not selling products, you're selling minutes. And it's just the yeah, most... You're selling, like, you're selling self, self-reliance. That's what you're selling. Right. Like, and it's yeah. Very, Big so corporate smarmy. pitch territory. And that's right. And he does it so well. And then he's been that shark up to that point. And then Saul Rubinick's character, John Woodman's like, you have no, you're not a techie, you have no clear. We've tried this, it doesn't work. And then um, Mike comes in as the tech. Jay Barakel finds his footing as, like with every classic introvert, you give them the thing they want to talk about and they will talk about it forever. And this is like, yeah. oh, this is, I, I can talk about this stuff. And I thought it was really, really well balanced and written, and but mainly performed. And I loved the, the style of it. I thought the handheld camera, the low-grade stock, the almost janky costumes just really fit everything yeah. that the movie was trying to tell anyway. And it's a, just the perfect example for me of create creatively telling a story in a style that fits the story, as opposed to Tetris's really bland and hugely missed opportunities to do the same. I was really surprised at this because I'm not a big fan of, like, this is how the product was made. I think there's, I don't think we should revere capitalist CEOs and how they made their money. But this was a genuinely interesting story, uh, written and directed and performed brilliantly. Really, really blown away by this film. Yeah, and I do think it's another case where I wouldn't go so far as to say that this film is a full-blown comedy. Like, it's definitely advertised that it is, and it definitely has a lot of, like, laugh-out-loud moments. But I think this is a really smart example of casting primarily comedic actors. Because basically everyone who's in it, Gabriel Kell, Glenn Howerton, um, Rich Sumner and Sung Wong Cho show up in it as well. These are all people who are very, very funny. And we all know Carrie was can be very, very funny as well. Um, but I think it's a really great example of casting people who have amazing comedic sensibilities in mostly dramatic roles. You know, um, it's like that. I, my favorite quote about filmmaking in the recent last like years from Jordan Peele, where he says, the difference between horror and comedy is the music. And I feel like this film <laughs> yeah. really understands 
that, you know, like, I think that this film really understands that that the type of dialogue that they're having, which again, is funny, (laughs) but it Mm. needs to be delivered in such a way that it feels um, very natural and dramatic. And they they, they carry off this balance incredibly well. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, the CEO is, or the CEO, the, the MVP is probably Glenn Howerton. But they're both mm-hmm. so good, like him and Ferris yeah. are so good. But it's it's, it, it's an interesting it. it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to watch him play, who is a character who is in many ways Dennis from It's Always Sunny, but if Dennis were competent, <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally. If you know what I mean, you know, like <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah. and I think, like I say, the story the story is out there. Like you can find it. It's it's not. It's all public. Right? So I will say that I think I do think the back half of the film loses a bit of steam, but there's no other way to tell the story. That's pretty much what happened. Um, Mm -hmm. That, you know, the company sort of lost sight of itself. And Mm -hmm. I do think that I do think the front half is a little more intense and interesting than the back half, but the whole thing is Mm -hmm. great. Um, And it's easily, I don't, I would have to go back and check, but it's easily, I think the best Canadian film I've seen. And I fully Mm -hmm. expect it to be a front runner at the CSAs uh, next year. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that uh, Brother was this year. Yeah. It's, uh, no, absolutely. Uh, totally different film, but like I, I fully expect right. this to be one that we see a lot of at the CSAs next year. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good movie. Sorry. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's sort of spaced out there. It was. Yeah. I yeah. was just thinking about all the parts of it I really liked, and I was just genuinely surprised by it. And, um, Hey, it makes I, me want to seek out. It makes me want to seek out more of Matt Johnson's stuff because I know that I've seen some of Nirvana of the Band show, which he made, um, but I don't think I've seen Operation Avalanche or the Dirties. I've seen the Dirties. I can't remember. Um, I've of these. But yeah, they're uh, yeah. He made a couple of films. He's made a couple of films, and they're all good. And I think mm-hmm. I always am a little bit dubious when a director puts themselves in a movie, but I think as putting himself in this position as a supporting player um, and sort of the like antithesis to what the Jim character becomes through the movie, um, I think mm-hmm. is a really interesting choice. Mm-hmm. And just to, just to highlight again, I, I also really like Saul Rubinick as a performer. I always enjoy him when he shows up and stuff, even if that mm-hmm. thing that he's in happens to be bad. Um, mm-hmm. But I think this film, that scene you're talking about where they're giving their pitch to Verizon and Jim comes in and basically outlines how they can make this tech work. There's a he gives a wonderful, almost wordless performance as a tech guy realizing that what mm. Jim is saying makes sense mm. and realizing the potential. And it's all done through like body language and facial expression. And it's mm. such a wonderful scene, like such a wonderful mm-hmm. scene. And I've actually legitimately thought that like should make a one day when I have time, I'm going to make a podcast that just follows. Saul Rubinek's career, like from beginning <laughs> to end, because I think he's such an interesting Canadian performer. Um, but uh, yeah, th- so anyway, this movie is really well written, um, again by Matt Johnson, well as director, and uh, really well written, really well performed, and I hope it makes a ton of money. I hope it makes a ton of money. I hope so. It's extra fascinating to someone, to people our age as well, who who were using this technology. I always felt that. Um, when BlackBerry failed, I was genuinely shocked because they always felt like such 
a, a standard uh, unbreakable part of that tech. Like they were used mm-hmm. so much by so many companies. And yep. I, I always find it a little humbling when like one day that's going to happen. One day Disney's going to close, right? One day Marvel's yep. going to close. And, and I always find it absolutely fascinating. Like how do you go from world market leader to nothing? And it turns out in this case, it was like we've seen them in, in parallel things, not reacting quickly enough to something else. That's the new leader. And, uh, yeah, certainly uh, not. It, I mean, it's when, just so interesting. It's, it's interesting watching this film as someone who's in their forties, because I remember watching, there's a, there's a very pivotal scene in the movie in the back half where Jim is called away from a business meeting because Steve jobs is introducing the iPhone. And I remember that speech. I remember that presentation. Mm-hmm. And I remember how electric it was to watch that and realize what Apple was about. Like when they were building to it, you're like, holy shit, he's going to do smart. They're making mm-hmm. this, like whatever they're about to do is going to change the way we do things. And it's, you know, it's not a mistake. It's not a coincidence that before 2007, every smartphone looked like a Blackberry. And after 2007, yeah, every smartphone yes. looks like an iPhone. But, but because you of know? that, when the iPhone got announced, and I remember that too, and I was using a BlackBerry at that time, I'm sure I was, and I thought, well, how how is anyone going to want to go from physical keyboard to on-screen keys? There's no way an on-screen keyboard is going to work. No one's going to go for that. And uh, well, that's why I don't work in tech. But the, it's, it's it, just that moment, that like absolute disrupting moment of tech is always really interesting to me yeah and and again not really a spoiler because it's all public record but like the way that they because again at this point jim and uh mike are both i think i've been transposing their name jim and mike are both um Mm. they're both not reacting to what's happening correctly for different reasons and i think it's really interesting to watch them watch the performances of them doing that and then talking to one another and not, and still not really getting, I think it's a really interesting Mm -hmm. watch. And I would honestly love to see even just a short film centered around Steve Ballmer at at Microsoft at the same time, famously gave an interview Mm -hmm. where he's like, no keyboard. They're not just going to walk in and conquer the market talking about the iPhone. (laughs) I would, I would love to see a short film or a feature length film of like the discussions of at Microsoft at the same time. Super yeah. Interesting. yeah, yeah. But anyway, oh, well, uh, I mean, so BlackBerry. When, when, whenever they decide to make the blockbuster story, they've got the whole um, the whole structure ready to go, haven't they? They really do become yeah. world become world leader and then not react quickly enough. So how many how many stars are you giving BlackBerry? Uh, this one's four stars for me as well. Uh, yeah, it's it's four. it's, it's a four. super good. Um, I do think, like I said, it does lose a bit of steam in the back half and. Mm-hmm. For me, again, as someone who already knew the story, um, I thought it was really well performed. But I, you know, I already had the story, so mm-hmm. there wasn't. And I, and to be clear, like at the time this was happening, I was, I was very invested in tech. I even had at one point a tech blog, which doesn't exist anymore. So don't ask me. About Did it. you? I didn't um, know that. It was before we met, and um, and uh, so like I, I, I am a little closer to it than I think most people are. Uh, so I think that. There's going to be a lot of twists and turns and surprises for most audiences. Um, and I think it's great. I think it's a great film. I think it's easily 
easily the best Canadian film of the year. It's one of the best Canadian films I would say I've seen in the last few years. And we've seen a lot of great Canadian films in the last few years. I've made sure of that for this podcast. Um, but it's easily, easily, well, I think it's probably going to end up on my best of the year list too. It's, maybe it's a bit early to say that in May, but I think it'll probably end up on my best. Mm-hmm. At this point, yeah, it's, it's full, at, it's at this point, it's very firmly on my best of the year list so far. But uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's great. I, I really hope that it makes a ton of money. It is being released in theaters on the 12th of May uh, by Elevation mm-hmm. Pictures, at least here in Canada. And I'm sure in the United States, uh, well, not mm-hmm. not sure who has it in the States, but it is definitely out of the States. You should go see it. I think this will play really well in a theater with a group of people. I think it's, it's uh, there's definitely, you're right, it's not a comedy, but there are funny moments and it's very snappy and I think it will play really well. You should go see it. Yeah. Agreed. And if nothing else, like, you're going to spend two hours with two actors giving two great performances. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. that's never Definitely a loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good. What, well, excellent. I want to know what your tech blog was called and what your AOL keyword was to find your tech blog. Was it called, like, Matt's Tech Wonderland Alta Vista? No. What was What was the name of your tech blog, or is that a secret? Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but, uh, it was me and my friend, uh, who now owns and operates the company, makes, um, Geekbench, uh, which is a a very popular benchmarking tool, and it was called Geek. (gasps) Geek Patrol. Yeah. Lovely. Well, good. What have we got coming up in the next week? What what are you looking forward to? I, I don't know why you asked me this question. I have so much stuff. (laughs) And I don't know what's coming next week. (laughs) Um, but I'll be, uh, I will have a couple of pieces going up. Um, I just wrote a review of um, Star Wars Visions for that shelf, and I will have Ooh. a review soon up for the big door prize for that shelf. And I will also have, I also just had a review go up on exclaim.ca for Polite Society, which you should also definitely see. It's great. Ooh, and uh, I will have a review up on this coming week. Also an acclaim for a new Disney, or sorry, FX show called The Class of 09. Um, uh, hopefully that'll be up tomorrow or the next day. Uh, but yeah, I don't honestly, we just, there's there's so much to watch. We have to figure out what we're going to watch the podcast. It's interesting because most, most of my movie watching is now for the podcasting, but my writing career has shifted mm. very much to TV. So, oh, that's good. You love yeah. TV. That's perfect. I do. You watch a lot of TV, probably too much. <laughs> good anyway. well thank you for listening yeah thank you for listening um we have a number of new subscribers again this week so everyone who's new here welcome we're glad to have you everyone who's been around for a while welcome back we're glad to have you too um we're just we're just happy you're all um if you have liked the show and you would like to support us more directly thank you to everyone who's already subscribing but if you aren't uh, hit that subscribe button on whatever your podcasting platform of choice we are on most of them and if you would like to leave us a uh, star rating or review or both that would be infinitely helpful those things help us show up in uh, charts and uh, all kinds of places that would normally um, and if you would like to support us a little more directly we do of course have our patreon feed you can find that in the show notes and all patrons patrons of podcast get a bonus conversation this week's was about 15 minutes mostly about robert zemeckis um as well so if you like hearing us talk get to hear more of us talk 
So I think that works out, don't you? Um, if you'd like to find us on the socials, uh, you can do so. The, the show is at Awesome Friday CA on most major platforms. Uh, I am at Matthew AF. Simon is at Temporary Pen. Um, so follow us in places. Uh, that's Instagram and Twitter for me, and Twitter for him, and Twitter and Instagram for Joe. Um, what am I forgetting? Nope, that's when about it. Record? We we record this here in Vancouver on the traditional ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. Um, so one more time, thank you so much for listening and for joining us here on this awesome Friday. Bye bye.